Would you pray with me? Thank you that we can call on your name, Lord Jesus, that in you we have life, in you we have salvation, in you we have redemption, and in you we can worship, in you we have access to the Father. You are everything, and we want to give you all the glory. We pray now that as we come to your word, Spirit of God, would you illumine our minds so that we would see Christ? Would you help us understand these words and not only understand them as in grammar and what's on the page, but our hearts would be illumined to see Christ, the testimony concerning Christ from John the Baptist. I pray that you give me grace to take us through this passage and help us to see you for your glory. Amen. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. Our goal today to examine verses 19 through 28 in a sermon entitled, A Voice in the Wilderness. Now, as the title suggests, today we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. If you were here last week or over the last month or so, we have been working our way through the prologue, and last week we finished verse 18. In the first 18 verses of this gospel, John builds a theological case for the person of Christ. He opened the gospel by saying that in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is that Word. He is the Word of God, and He is the Word from God. He argued that Jesus is the eternal, self-existent God who always was. He did not have a beginning. And everything that does have a beginning had its beginning through Jesus Christ, because everything that exists, He spoke into existence. John argued that he is the source of life. Physical life and spiritual life, they all come from Christ. Now John said that this life came and was manifested as light which came into the world. And this light, he says, enlightens the darkness and illumines the hearts of men. He's the one who gives, light, who gives right to fallen sinners to become children of God. Those who believe in Christ, those who trust in Him, are the ones who are regenerated by the Spirit, and they have their eyes open, and so they see the glory of Christ, and they believe in Him. As we saw last time in verse 18, John says that ultimately the Word came to reveal the Father to us. In verse 18, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained him. Ultimately, that is the role of Jesus Christ. He makes the invisible God visible to us. So when people ask what God is like, the answer is like Jesus. Read the Gospels and figure out what Jesus is like, and that is what God is like, because Jesus manifested the Father to us. Now, this is a theological case that John builds for Christ. And beginning in verse 19, which we're going to look at today, he's going to flesh out these truths in a practical way. As we begin this historical section of the gospel, which begins in verse 19, I want to restate the purpose of the gospel of John. John tells us in no uncertain terms, in chapter 20, verse 31, that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This is apologetics. 
John is not apologizing for Jesus, but he is building a case for Jesus. That's why we said that the Gospel of John is John's attempt to present a compelling case for Christ. A case that you would listen to, that you would hear, and that you would have no other options but to believe. In fact, if you disbelieve this case, you have received everything that could possibly be given to you, and you're just demonstrating the harshness of your heart. Now, John writes this gospel so that you would believe in Christ. And he does so by compiling credible testimonies of different individuals who surrounded the ministry of Christ to tell us that, yes, Jesus was who he said he was. And Jesus did what Scripture claims he did because they were eyewitnesses. And so they're giving you this credible eyewitness testimony to the person of Christ. The word testimony will appear again, again, and again in this gospel. We already saw it in verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. In verse 15, John testified about him. In verse 19 that we're going to look at today, this is the testimony of John. So just like you would go to a court and you would listen to the testimony of witnesses, this is what you have in the gospel of John. This is the testimony concerning Christ. Now, this afternoon, we're going to open with the first testimony that John presents to us. And it is the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, it is fitting to begin with the testimony of John the Baptist, because according to Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Whoa. There has not been a greater man than John the Baptist. Now, if according to Jesus, he's the greatest man, wouldn't you like his, to hear his testimony regarding Christ? Well, John says, I got you. And he gives it to us here in the opening verses. Now, we've seen that John the Baptist has already been mentioned multiple times. If you go back to verse 6, it says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. Verse 7 says, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. If you look at verse 15, John, again, the Baptist, testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist played a pivotal role in the ministry of the Lord, so it is fitting for us to begin with his testimony. Now, Apostle John presents the testimony of John the Baptist in this lengthy section beginning in verse 19. And the first thing he does is he presents to us the identity and the mission of John the Baptist. These will be the two main ideas that I want to explore in our time today. Who was John the Baptist? And what was his mission? And as we will see that his identity and his mission, they're intertwined. If we want to outline this passage, it's not necessarily that difficult because we can outline in this way, and you have this in your bulletin. We can say that in verses 19 through 21, John tells us who John the Baptist is not. And beginning in verse 22, he tells us who John the Baptist is and what John the Baptist does. Now, as we examine this text, we will learn that John the Baptist was a great man. But here's the key. He did not regard himself as a great man. Although he could, 
John the Baptist did not take credit to himself for anything. You see, his identity and his mission, they were wrapped up in one pursuit, and that one pursuit was to make much of Christ. And in this regard, we can say that John the Baptist is a model for us. You see, John's mission and John's ministry was to point people to Christ. And I would argue to you that your job and your mission with wherever, whatever you know, ministry you serve in the church, whatever your vocation is, your job is exactly the same. It is to point people to Christ. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or maybe you are an elder in the church, your life must be characterized by the humility that characterized John the Baptist. It is not about us. It is all about him. Now, as we read this text, and we can just walk away with, okay, I understand the content of this, but how does this apply to me? Here's a practical way. As John the Baptist, we must make much of Christ and not ourselves. If we're going to apply this text to, text to ourselves, this is the lesson that, you, that I want you to walk away with. As you read about this man and as we walk through these verses, you understand his heart and his heart and his desire to make much of Christ. And you know what? You and I can walk away with the same. It is not about us. It is about him. That's what John teaches us. Join me as I read verses 19 through 28, which will be our verses for today. Apostle John writes this, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's begin, first of all, by examining who John the Baptist is not. Now, it is fitting for us to start here and first look at this title, John the Baptist. Now, although... Apostle John does not identify him as John the Baptist. We know that he is talking about John the Baptist here. We have a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 3. Listen to these verse, to these words. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Matthew is talking about the same John that John is talking about. So Apostle John in this section here is speaking about John the Baptist. Now, there are some Baptists who claim that they can trace their lineage all the way back to John the Baptist. 
Now, they're proud that John was John the Baptist, not John the Pentecostal or John the Charismatic, right? Is that what John the Baptist means? Why is she called John the Baptist? Now, if that's what you think, or that you know some people, no doubt, who think that, I hate to burst your bubble, but no, that's not true. When John the Baptist ministered, church did not exist. In fact, church will not exist until Acts chapter 2. If the church did not exist, let alone a Baptist church, there was no church in the world. Baptist denomination came into existence into the 17th century. Until then, there were no Baptists. So John the Baptist is not a Baptist. That's, a, that's for free for you here. Now, why is he called John the Baptist? It is simply because John was baptizing people. In fact, John was not known as John the Baptist until he started baptizing people. We know this from Luke chapter 3, that he was simply known as John, the son of Zacharias. Luke chapter 3 verse 2 says, In the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he was simply John, the son of Zacharias, before he began his ministry. Saying he was John the Baptist is like saying John the plumber that you know, or John the mechanic. He was John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. Now, as I said, there is no question that this man played a pivotal role in this transition between the Old Testament and the New. And it is so fitting for us to spend a little bit of time examining this man. He was a special man. I mean, we read the fact that Jesus said he's the greatest man who ever lived. We know that his birth was announced by an angel to Zacharias. And in Luke chapter 1, you have that whole scene when Gabriel appears to Zacharias, who, and his father was a priest, by the way, so that means that John the Baptist was a Levite. We read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now it happened while he, that is Zacharias, his father, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So he was a priest. His father was a priest. And when he was chosen by lot, as this says here, he goes into the temple. And you remember all the people are standing outside and he sees the vision. He sees vision of Gabriel who comes to him and tells him about his son, that he's going to have a son. He's an old man. His wife is an old woman, and this is what Gabriel said regarding the son that they will have, John the Baptist. Verse 15 says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and a disobedient to the attitude of righteousness, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, how would you like that announcement? You're an old man. You had, no, you had no children. And then you hear this, that you're going to have a child, and he's going to be a special child. Notice he's going to be a special child because he said he's going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. 
Now, this is unique. Again, remember, we're talking about transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we know that the work of the Spirit was different in the Old Covenant than it is in the New. And even in the New Covenant, when children are born, they're not filled with the Spirit from the beginning. You're not filled with the Spirit until you're converted. And here is this little baby who is going to be filled with the Spirit from the womb. We know in the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God would descend on certain individuals for a specific period of time in order to enable them to do the ministry to which God called them. And here is Angel saying to Zacharias that your child will be so special that he's going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. That's why it's fitting for John in our passage here in chapter 1 verse 6 say there came a man sent from God whose name was John. God was at work in the life of this baby even from his womb. He was a unique instrument chosen by God for a special ministry. What was his ministry? Well, he says here, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. This word turn is often used in scripture to speak of repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is you were going one way and you turn around, that's repentance, and you head the other way. You were running away from the Lord, and when you repent, you turn around and you run to the Lord. And so what he's saying here, that this child will turn many sons to the Lord. No wonder when John the Baptist comes on the scene, it says in chapter 3, verse 3, and he came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance, because his role was to turn people to the Lord. Now, when we say it was a baptism of repentance, this is not a New Testament baptism. This was a baptism of repentance. New Testament baptism is a different, and New Testament baptism does not exist until you get to the church age. This was people who were confessing their sins because they were expecting the Messiah who was to come. According to Gabriel, John will minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This is a very important phrase, and we'll come back to it in a bit. Now, in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, angels' words were fulfilled. We read this, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. His father named him John. And in verse 80 of Luke chapter 1, we have a one-sentence summary of the first 30 years of life for John the Baptist. It says this, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. According to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, he had a very unique diet and dress. It says in Matthew 3, 4, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leathered belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That's not priestly garments or a diet, if you're wondering. Now, when John comes on the scene, his ministry took off and he became very prominent. His ministry began when the word of God came to him in the wilderness and commanded him to go and preach. How significant was his ministry? Well, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 5, all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now this obviously did not sit well with the religious leaders of that day. 
And that prompted the encounter which we have in our text here. Now, to set the context, John writes this in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Now, a few notes here. Notice this term here, the Jews. It is the first appearance of this term, and it will appear at least 71 times in this gospel. Now, when John writes of the Jews, this is not an anti-Semitic statement, because the man who writes this is a devout Jew himself. Few instances in the gospel, this term is used in a neutral or in a positive sense, for example, John chapter 2, verse 6, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish, same term, custom of purification. In chapter 4, verse 9, when John records for us Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. That's just a fact of life. In chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus said, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, those are somewhat positive or neutral statements. But for the most part, when this term appears, it refers to the religious leaders who were hostile to Jesus in the gospel. Primarily, this term will refer to those who hated Christ from the beginning. So when you had John the Baptist pop on the scene, and he has this huge ministry, everybody's going to him, and all of a sudden these religious leaders thinking that they're losing their power, and they're like, we need to investigate, we need to figure out who this guy is. So we're told here that the Jews sent to John priests and Levites. Now when it says here the Jews, most likely because they're coming from Jerusalem, they're coming from the capital. And in the capital, the Jews were governed by Sanhedrin. This is basically their supreme court. It was primarily made up of Sadducees. And John does not mention Sadducees by name in his gospel, probably because they, they were no longer in power at the time when he's writing this. Now, because it, was concert, because it was composed primarily of Sadducees, these were the powerful elites who ran the temple and everything surrounded the temple. Remember when Jesus goes in and he cleans out the house, they have a problem because that's their business. They have their business going there. They have money-changing business. That's how they became rich. That's how they became elite. And they control all that and they love their power. And we'll clearly see that throughout the Gospels. We can say that Sadducees, they were more political than they were religious. And it is true, there are people in the church who are more about politics than there are about Christ. Now, that doesn't say much about Christ. It's just that people are misusing Christ and misusing the church for their own purposes. And so it was in this case. These people were politicians, and all they wanted is control. They were liberal in their theology. They denied the existence of spiritual world. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. That's why some say they were sad, you see. Because they controlled the temple, many priests and Levites who worked in the temple, they were part of Sadducees. Now, because Sanhedrin, they had all the levers of power, and they control all the levers of power, whenever there was this new movement or somebody was doing something out of order, they needed to invest, investigate and figure out. That's why they send this delegation to investigate John. Now, verse 24 is interesting if you want to look at it because it sheds some light on this delegation. Notice it says here, they had been sent from the Pharisees. 
Now, while the Sadducees controlled, primarily they had most of the seeds in Sanhedrin, the Pharisees were the minority at that time. The Pharisees were more liked by the people because they were more like the people. And if you know anything about Pharisees, you know that these people, they were sticklers about the law and sticklers about traditions. And it's all about, hey, you do things right way because, you know, we are preserving God's law. So they were, so, they were all about observing laws and the traditions. And no wonder when John the Baptist comes on the scenes, this is a problem for Pharisees. Because he's doing something that no one has ever done before. And they're wondering, where does this come from? And it's probably what happened is that these Pharisees who have some power, but they don't have ultimate power, they go to Sanhedrin and they tell them, like, look at that, what's going on here? The whole country of Judea is going to this guy. You need to investigate this. And so the Sanhedrin sends priests and Levites to John to figure out what it is that he's doing. Now, if you look at our verses here, verses 19 through 28, they come, and this is the structure, they ask seven questions. Seven questions, six of them have to do with John's identity, and one of them has to do with his mission. Six questions, they say, who are you? What then? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Again, they say, who are you? And verse 6, what do you say about yourself? All these questions have to do with who are you? What is your identity? And in the final question, 7, they ask him, why then are you baptizing? Now, because some questions are paired together, John gives them five responses, and that is the structure of this text. Now let's begin by examining the first question they ask. Verse 19 says, that This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Whom are you? Now there is no doubt that the priests and Levites knew that John was a priest. I mean, his father was a priest servant in the temple. And so their question is, what is this priest doing out there in the wilderness by himself, doing, the, I mean, baptizing people and everybody's going to him? Perhaps they were aware of the miraculous things that occurred during his birth. I mean, it's been 30 years, but no doubt the word had spread. From all we know, John the Baptist did not participate in any of the priestly duties because they were sort of on rotation, because priests lived all over the country. And so based on the lot and based on the rotation, they would travel to Jerusalem and serve there for a period of time, two weeks or however long, and they would go back and live in their own place. As far as we know, John never did that. The text in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, tells us that he lived in the wilderness from age whatever, one, two, three, until the age of 30. Now, when they ask the question, who are you? The meaning of the question becomes obvious when you read his response. And in verse 20, John responds to them and says, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So what is the question asking? John, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? So they're asking John whether he thinks that he is the Messiah. Now this word Christ, we talked about this before, but just by way of review briefly. When you read Jesus Christ in the Bible, it is not his first and last name. Christ is a title. Christ is a title which means the anointed one. If you go back and you read through the Old Testament, you read through the law, there were certain individuals who were anointed with oil, which was a demonstration of the fact that they were taken by God and set aside for a specific ministry. You had prophets who were anointed, you have priests who were anointed, and you have kings who were anointed with oil. 
Now, no one man ever occupied all three offices at the same time. But the Jews were expecting that one is going to come who is going to be the anointed one. He's not just a anointed one like David or like, you know, prophets that we have. No, he's going to be the anointed one. He's going to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. Listen to Isaiah 61, one such passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You remember that this is the text that Jesus applied to himself when he showed up to Nazareth, his own hometown. And he says, you guys know, 700 years? You've been reading. Isaiah spoke of the one who is the anointed one. Guess what? I am he. And you remember what they tried to do? They tried to kill him for it. Because Jesus came and proclaimed that I am that anointed one. So the anointed in the Old Testament, Mashiach, from which we get Messiah, and you'll see this later on in this chapter, the Greek equivalent of Messiah is Christos, which is Christ. So when they come to John and say, are you the Christ? They're saying, John, do you think you are the anointed one? You think you are the Messiah? That is their question. And notice how he responds. Notice how vehemently he denies that. It's almost like he's indignant even with them asking. It's like, are you kidding me? No, I am not the Christ. And I mean, the words are piled up on here. He says, he and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. No, notice he wasn't vague about it. He's like, well, let's see, you know, maybe. No, no, in no uncertain terms, he says, I am not the Christ. In fact, he could have just said me, but he adds emphatic I. I am not the Christ. Now notice the humility of John here. He doesn't take any credit to himself. He doesn't take any honor to himself. He does not ride the wave of popularity that he has at the moment. No, flat out he denies, I am not the Christ. I am not the one who was promised. How many people today, though they would not say it, but they act as if they're Christ? I mean, they love their titles. They love prestige, the letters after their names. How many of us, we like the likes, the affirmation, the clicks that we get? Notice, John was not about that. He didn't care about any of that, even though he could. John says, no, 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 I am not the one. Unambiguously, he said, I am not the one. And guess what? Neither am I and neither are you. It is not about us. John says, it is not about me. I am not the one. Now, in response, they follow up with a pair of questions. Look at verse 21. They ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, we might be reading this as, you know, Gentiles. You know, like, well, what are you talking about? What does Elijah have to do with this? But if you put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish person who lives in the first century, you will understand the argument and you will understand where they're going. You see, these were people who were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the one who would come and set them free. They wanted one to come who would bring freedom back to Israel, who would kick out Romans, who would sit there and judge all the nations, and he would set up his throne and rule over the whole world because there were prophecies like that in the Old Testament. And that is true. There, those were there. But because that, before that one would come, you have prophecies such as these. Listen to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, 
I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The very last verse of the Old Testament says this, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord is associated with the coming of the Messiah when he comes to judge the nations. Before that day, Elijah says, or Malachi says, that Elijah will come, and according to verse 6, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So they come to John and say, okay, I get it. You're not, you're not the Messiah. But are you the guy who's supposed to come right before Messiah comes? Are you the Elijah? Look at his response. I am not. No, I am not Elijah. And that is an interesting response if you know your Bible. Because you could just say, well, I'm not Elijah, so move on. But listen to this text. If you can even go there, go to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples about John the Baptist. And listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. And his disciples ask him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And listen to this verse, verse 13, look at it. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. What's going on here? Jesus calls John the Baptist Elijah. And Elijah says, no, 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 I am not Elijah. How do you square this circle? Well, in fact, it's not that hard if you just go back and read Jesus' explanation. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples after John the Baptist has already been executed in chapter 14. So John the Baptist is dead already. Now go back and look at verse 11. Jesus says to his disciples, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. What does that mean? Well, whoever John the Baptist was, he was not the one of whom Malachi spoke. Because this is yet future. He said, Elijah is coming in the future. John has been executed already. John is dead already. And he said, it is still future that he will come. So John the Baptist was not the Elijah spoken of in Malachi. You see, you have to understand that the Old Testament believers... They did not understand that there's going to be two comings of the Messiah. Because there are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament, and yet you do not have a prophecy that says, this relates to his first coming, and this relates to his second. And that explains why so many people were confused with Christ. That explains why disciples were confused. Because you have prophecies that tell us that Jesus Christ is going to set up his throne. He is going to rule over the nations. He is going to kick out all the Gentiles and all the pagans and all the unconverted and punish them. He is going to do all that. And yet at the same time, you have passages that say, oh yeah, he was despised and forsaken of man. He's the suffering servant 
who dies in the place of his people. And so people had a hard time. Well, how do you reconcile? He dies for the sake of his people. At the same time, he rules over his people. Now, we understand that because we're looking at it from the perspective of a New Testament. And we understand that there are two comings. The first coming, he comes to die as a suffering servant. And the second time, he comes as a reigning king. He came the first time to die. And therefore, some of the prophecies of the Old Testament, they relate to his first coming. And there are others that relate to his second coming. And so, same thing happens here. When he's talking about Malachi chapter 3 and 4, that Elijah refers to his second coming. And that second coming is Revelation chapter 19, when he is going to come literally, bodily to this earth and set up his kingdom here on earth. And you remember when he shows up, yes, he judges people. Yes, he sheds blood. Yes, he kills all the unconverted. But notice the text says, before that happens, Elijah is coming. Now you remember the prophet Elijah? You remember that he didn't die? Remember he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire? And that Elijah who hasn't died, he's coming back. And that's why many people believe that one of the prophets in Revelation chapter 11 is Elijah himself. Now, we can't prove that, but we do know that Elijah is coming. The same Elijah, the same prophet of the Old Testament, he's going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, as the text says. But John the Baptist, in some way, resembled the ministry of Elijah during Christ's first coming. You remember the verse that I read in the beginning? Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to it again with this context. This is what the angel says. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Notice he doesn't say that he is the Elijah. No, he's not the literal Elijah of the Old Testament. But he ministers in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's why Jesus could say, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So no, John the Baptist was not the literal Elijah who is still to come before Christ's coming. But the ministry of John the Baptist was in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So when they come to John and say, well, are you the Elijah? Well, he's absolutely right in saying, no, I am not. I am not the Elijah that you are thinking about. Now they continue to question him. Verse 21. Are you the prophet? Again, what are they talking about here? Are you like generally the prophet? No. What they're referring to here is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. You remember that promise that Moses made or God made through Moses? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, Jews at that time, they debated whether this prophecy referred to Messiah himself or to someone else who's going to come before the Messiah. Now, because we have the New Testament, we know that this prophecy is applied to Christ. Peter applied it to Christ in Acts chapter 3 in his sermon, and same thing Stephen did in, in Acts chapter 7. We know that speaks of Christ, but they didn't know that. So they're asking John, John, listen, are you the prophet? Is Deuteronomy 18.15 about you? And he said, no. And notice how his responses, they get shorter and shorter. I am not the Christ. No. No. Notice John wants to take all the attention off of himself. And so far, he only told us what he's not. 
Let's look at what John the Baptist is, beginning in verse 22. Now you see, they're kind of getting frustrated in verse 22. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? I mean, we can't just go back to Jerusalem and say, well, he said he's not the Messiah, he's not the Elijah, he's not the prophet. Well, did you ask him who he is? And that's what they're doing here. Who are you then? And notice John responds, if you're looking in your Bibles, you see that that text is a quote from the Old Testament. John responds by quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And that is the chapter that we read at the beginning of the service. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now John takes that and says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I am nothing more than just a voice. Now, if you were to read the original context of Isaiah chapter 40, you know that the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And then in chapter 40, there's this transition, the second part of the book that begins with comfort, comfort my people. And you comfort them by the coming of the Lord. And as we read the text, it says, listen, clear the highways and prepare the way for the Lord to come. Now, when Isaiah said, clear the way for the Lord, he's not saying, you know what, bring in this earth-moving material equipment here so we can build a highway so that God could come. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Because in the remaining of the passage, he explains the way you prepare the way for the Lord is by turning your hearts to the Lord, by confessing your sin, by dealing with your idolatry, by turning to the Lord, you prepare the way for the Lord. And every gospel takes this passage here and applies it to the ministry of John the Baptist. And saying the role of John the Baptist was to be that voice who calls out in the wilderness and tells people to get right with God. If John is the voice that prepares the way for Christ, look at how Christ is identified in this passage. John is preparing the way for who? For Christ. But notice what the text says. Prepare the way for the Lord. If you go back to the Old Testament... That Lord there is Yahweh. And if you're looking at your translation, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is Yahweh. If he is preparing the way for Yahweh, and yet John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, what does that say about Jesus? That Jesus is no other than Yahweh himself who's about to show up. Notice John is exhausting ways of telling you that Jesus is God. Jesus is God himself who's about to show up. And he's here. But sure, Bible never calls Jesus God. Except all the times that it does. Jesus is Yahweh, but I am a voice. That's what John says. Jesus is the word, but I am the voice that points to the word. What is interesting, you can't see voice. You can only hear it. And it's almost as if John is trying to hide. He says, listen, it's not about me. It's all about him. He's deflecting all the attention from himself and he directs their attention and the message to Christ. Now again, we can learn from John here. As gospel ministers, or it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what role you play, 
we don't draw attention to ourselves. But with what we do and what we say, we draw attention to Christ. Listen, we're not here to promote ourselves. We're not here to promote our ministries. We are here to promote Christ. And to the extent that our ministry points to Christ, great, let it grow. And to the extent that it points to us, let it go to hell. And that's what John is saying. I am not here for me. We are simply heralds who point to the king. Casting Crowns has a song called Only Jesus. And the chorus of that song perfectly reflects the ministry of John the Baptist. They're saying this, And I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. We can say that this is the song that John the Baptist hummed in between his bites of locusts and wild honey. Only Jesus. So who is John? He's not Christ. He's not Elijah or the prophet. He is simply a voice. Now in verse 25, they asked the final question. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Remember, the Pharisees were sticklers about the law and about traditions. They had rules and regulations for everything and for everyone. And here comes John. He begins to baptize crowds of Jews. Now at that time, baptism was not unknown to Jews. Some of the groups who were baptizing proselytes who were converting to Judaism and were accepting the way of the Old Testament. Others just simply practice baptism by pointing back to Ezekiel 36 when it talks about being cleansed and being washed. But as far as we can tell, everywhere baptism was always self-administered. This is what you did. You went and you baptized yourself. And this is something new that John the Baptist comes and notice it says everybody was going to him and he was baptizing them. The Pharisees are like, what is going on? Who does this guy think he is? That he has authority to baptize. And these are not just Greeks who are converting to Judaism and want to become Jews. No, these are Jews. These are rulers. These are priests that are going to him and that are being baptized by him. Look at John's response. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. With this one statement here, we can say that John summarizes his ministry. My job is to prepare people for the coming of Messiah. Now when he says here, I baptize in water, this is the baptism of repentance of which we read in all the other passages. And repentance is what prepares the way for the Lord. And listen, John did not come up with this idea on his own. It wasn't that one day he was sitting there, you know, crunching on his locust, and you're like, man, I got a great idea. I'm going to go, start baptizing people. That's not what happened. No, John was commissioned directly by God to go and do this. In verse 33 of this chapter, he says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me. I didn't come up with this on my own. I didn't decide that, listen, I'm going to do this new thing. I like people. I like popular. No, he who sent me to baptize in water. And notice the contrast here, even though it is not explicit in this text, it will become explicit by the time you get to verse 33. 
Notice what he says here. The contrast here is I baptize in water, but you know what? You have a bigger problem on your hands. You don't have to worry about me because all I'm doing is I'm just baptizing people with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. And who is that one? Looking at verse 33. I did not recognize him, but you will send me to baptize in water, said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Notice again, he's saying, listen, my ministry is so insignificant. All I'm doing is just baptizing in water for crying out loud. All I'm doing is calling people to repentance. But guess what? Among you stands one, and he's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Among you stands one whom you do not know. And guess what? He's already here. Because among you stands one whom you do not know. Now John is speaking this to this delegation that came from Jerusalem. He's speaking this to the crowds. And when he says among you stands one, he probably doesn't mean that Jesus was there on that day. And how do we know that? Because Jesus will come the next day. Because if you look at verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. It is interesting to trace John's presentation here in this historical section because John opens this historical section and he gives us a week from the life of Christ. How do we know that? We know that because verse 29 tells us that Jesus comes to him the next day. If you look at verse 35, he tells us what happened the day after that. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, which means that by this time, Jesus already was baptized by John, and Jesus already spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And so this is the height of John the Baptist's ministry. And so when Jesus comes back into Galilee, when Jesus returns here to John the Baptist, he is already baptized, he's already been in the wilderness, and John is proclaiming here and says, listen, he already began his ministry. He is already at work, and John knew that because John baptized him 40 days before that. So verse 29 is one day, verse 35 is another day. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us what happened three days after that. Because it says, on the third day after that, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And then we have the conclusion of the week in verse 12. After this, after he did the miracle in Cana, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days That's the ministry of Jesus. And John the Baptist says he already started his work. The Jewish leaders to whom John is presenting this, he says, you do not know him. You remember John gave us a summary statement already? His own people did not receive him. And now John lays out the reasons why they didn't receive him or how that unfolded. John told them clearly who Jesus is And they did not receive him. Verse 27, John the Baptist states what Apostle John said about him in verse 15. He said, He who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, since John is the forerunner for Christ, chronologically, obviously, he comes before Christ. But earlier he said, He was before me. Why? Because Christ is eternal. But in the ministry time, John the Baptist comes, he presents Israel and saying, hey, your king is coming, Messiah is coming, believe in him. He was a forerunner. But forerunners are not greater than those whose coming they announce. When the herald 
went into the town telling him that the king is coming. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's saying, listen, the king is coming. Get ready for king's coming. And John understood that. John knew his role. John knew that it was not about him, but it was all about Christ. He recognized his position, and so he employs this common proverb to describe his own inferiority. He says, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. He says, you take all the slaves. That was the job, by the way, of the lowest slave in the house, to wash the feet and take the sandals. Or when you're saying, I'm not worthy to carry someone's shoes, you're basically saying, listen, I'm nobody. And John is saying, listen, you take all his slaves, and you take the lowest slave, and I'm below that slave because I'm not worthy to do what the lowest slave does. Again, that is humility. That is one who recognizes his place. And we know that this was not a false humility because that's how he presented everywhere, all throughout the Bible. In 115, he said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Later on, we'll come back to him in chapter 3. And he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He must increase, but I must decrease. According to verse 6 of our chapter, John came to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. So John is saying, listen, you're concerned about me? You're concerned about my ministry? That, that, that should be the least of your concerns. Because all I am is a messenger who points to the one who is coming after me, and that is Christ. That is the one who comes after me, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and that's the one that you're going to reject. Listen, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And from the very get-go, the Jewish leaders were presented with the testimony concerning Christ. So when they rejected him, they did it with eyes wide open. They couldn't say, well, we, we, we didn't know who he was. Oh, they knew all too well. They knew of him, but they did not know him. Well, that's no different than many people today. Many people hear the testimony of Christ. They know all about him, but just like these religious leaders, they do not know him. In verse 28, John closes with a historical note. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, the location of this Bethany is unknown today. We know that there is another Bethany, which is two miles off from Jerusalem. And to distinguish the two, John says that this Bethany is beyond the Jordan. Now, it is not uncommon to have cities that are named with the same name, even in our day today. But you might say, well, John, why, why write this? Why record this? Especially if people are not, going to be, are not going to be able to find out this Bethany. Why is he doing that? He's doing this to tell you that, listen, what I'm writing to you is not a myth. I'm not just, you know, have a creative writing exercise here. No, I am recording history for you. And these events took place in time and space. And I'm giving you exact location where they took place. Jesus and John the Baptist were historical figures which operated in time and space. And you have to deal with their claims one way or another. Either these things are true or they're not. And that's why John records this here to tell you that this is not a book that is a myth that you can dismiss and say people made this up. No, this is a historical account of a man whom Jesus called the greatest, testifying to Christ. As we close, let me ask you two questions. 
Do you believe in the testimony of John? You see, his entire ministry was to point people to Christ. I am not it. I am not the one, but he's everything. In the very next verse, in the very next chapter, which we'll look at next time, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one who was promised. This is the Redeemer. This is the one who saves you. This is the one who's going to die in your place. As you're walking to the temple, bringing your lambs to sacrifice them, this is the Lamb because all of your lambs are pointing to this Lamb. This Lamb is the one who will take away the sin of the world. That was John's job. That was his mission. And he faithfully testified to that. And he lost his head for it. John was a messenger pointing to the Messiah. Second question. Does your character and actions resemble that of John's? You see, everything about John was about humility. Everything about John was, listen, it is not about me, but it is about him. He did not seek to make much of himself, but only to make much of Christ. And guess what? He had opportunities. He had plenty of opportunities. He had a lot of people following him and coming to him, regarding him as a great teacher. When Jesus says of you that you are the greatest man, I mean, that's pretty good. He had every opportunity to be proud he was living today, he would be trending on social media pretty much every day. He had opportunity and perhaps even temptation to promote himself. But we see from the record of Scripture that he never did. He sought to make much of Christ with all that he was and did. You see, it is only possible to do that when you recognize your place. When you recognize that, listen, you are nobody. You are the lowest slave and so am I. And your job is pretty simple. It is to point people to Christ. And when you recognize that's who you are and you are okay with that, then it's not a problem for you that people don't exalt you and don't promote you because they're not supposed to. They're supposed to promote Christ. But you see, if you see yourself somewhere here and people don't give you what you think you deserve, then you'll have a problem with that. But if you understand that you are a slave, unworthy slave, and just like Luke 17 says, when you have done everything that he commanded you, simply say, I just did what I was supposed to do. You didn't do anything great. And John says, listen, I have a great ministry. And that great ministry is to point people to Christ. It's okay if people will not remember our names as long as they remember his. That's what John says to us. So whatever ministry, whatever position you have, remember it is not about you. It's about him. And your ministry will be blessed when you adopt that attitude like John the Baptist, I am not going to make much of myself, but I'm going to make much of Christ because he deserves all the glory. Amen? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would empower us to do that. Help us to live as those in this world who are just like John the Baptist, pointing people to you. Those who know you, may we get a better understanding of who you are and what you did. And those who don't know you, I pray that even today you would reveal yourself to them, save them, and give them the grace to believe. We ask this for your glory. Amen.